Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Noah. Really excited once again about this next season for worship uh, through music. We've been praying, and it's amazing to see even in the last four years of our life as a church how we're tempted to be anxious and toil for when transition happens with people that the Lord has raised up, and he always um, delivers and raises up someone new, so we're grateful for that. Uh, today, we are going to be working through Colossians 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. I've titled this, Rejoicing in Suffering to Make Jesus Known. Quite frankly, that, that doesn't really capture all of what Paul's talking about here, but it gets a little bit to it, and if I'm honest, I'm not super creative, so um, there you have it. Uh, so, as a quick uh, prologue before we jump in, this passage has become quite personal for me in my family. Um, I have been personally challenged by the study. I've really grown in my uh, knowledge of Christ, my love for Christ through this, uh, by his grace. And I'll share sh some of this with you. Uh, but also as a part of that prologue, if you will, um, this is a topic that our modern day church is not really great about, just to be uh, really frank. Um, in fact, pastors don't talk about suffering much. Hopefully we do um, more than maybe what you've been um, accustomed to. But we as believers, we, we often have little encouragement to offer a believer in suffering. Um, we, we, when we encounter in suffering, we, we want to try to avoid it, whether it be in our own life or in someone else's life. And so uh, what does that look like? We might all offer a cliche phrase to kind of whisk it away. Or, uh, you know, when we're in the middle of suffering, we might just pray and only focus on God removing us from suffering. And you know, we can all relate to this, right? And so I say all of this because I'm talking to me too, right? Um, when, when I got to this passage, and even in the season that I'll discuss a bit in my own life, I was extremely convicted. And so I offer these thoughts because I approach the topic very humbly. It's not something that I've uh, achieved, nor will I achieve prior to Christ returning, nor have you, nor will you. Uh, but I want us this morning to be really challenged together. Um, to, to see and think of suffering in a more biblical manner, to be challenged in areas that maybe we're not seeing it as biblically as we should, and repent of that and ask God to grow us. Um, I will comment quickly on God's sovereign providence even in the passage that I'm preaching on. I was supposed to preach last Sunday. Um, we had a lot going on in our life. My daughter's 11th birthday. We had some friends in town from our sending church back in Raleigh. Um, and so I reached out to Michael and I said, look, man, I hope this doesn't really mess everything up, but can we flip-flop? And he said, sure, no problem. Unbeknownst to me what passage uh, lay before me. And as I began to look at it last week, it, I, I, I almost couldn't, I told a couple guys this this week, I couldn't hardly pin anything. I wrote out a quick outline, but for pretty much a week straight, I just listened to sermons on it. I just pondered it. I read as much as I could on it because I was just being schooled. <laughs> just to be honest. And so I stand before you today because we're going to do this together, okay? Um, and so today what we'll do is we'll work through this, and here's my prayer. I'm just going to lay it out for you. I pray that we all will become more mature in Christ, and we will be challenged to suffer better for the sake of Christ, just as Acts 14, says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Church, there's two things promised in the New Testament. One is Salvation by grace through faith, and two is suffering. We like to talk a lot about the first, not about the second. So let's pray to that end, and then we'll hop in together. <clears throat> Gracious God, um, I'm incredibly thankful for the opportunity to study your word, to prepare to preach and teach, Lord. But what I'm the first to admit, just as even my, my wife reminded my children last night at dinner, Lord, that even Paul says he's the chief of all sinners. And so, Lord... Man, so am I. Uh, Lord, I certainly haven't arrived in this area. Lord, help me to be transparent and confessional this morning, even as I teach about how, Lord, you can more mature me. But Lord, I pray ultimately the aim of this morning would be that we would grow in maturity of Christ, not to say that, look at, look at us, look how mature we are, but Lord, so that we may not be led away with plausible arguments. And Lord, that we may bring you more glory in our life through suffering and through all of life for the good of the church and the glory of of your name for eternity. So Lord, help us as we do this together. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> in Iran, in the fall of 2021, three Christian workers were imprisoned after attending a house church. 
Though officials promised to reduce their sentences if they remained silent about their Christian faith, one of the prisoners, a woman, a mother, is using this opportunity to share the gospel. And this is what she says. She said, now I understand why God let me be brought here to prison. My daughter has many people to care for her and to teach her about the love of God. But in this prison, there are many young girls who have never heard about the love of God. They need me, and I need to be here for them. This sister has suffered solitary confinement several times because of her Christian witness, yet she continues to be bold for the sake of Christ and to share her faith. And this is her prayer. She says, please pray for me. For many here inside these prison walls will come to faith and experience true freedom only Christ can give. Now, I read this to you. It's from the Voice of Martyrs. If you're not familiar with the Voice of Martyrs, you can get plenty of resources for them from them for free. You can subscribe to them. They'll send you emails. Their website's very interactive. But this is just one of a million examples I could read to you and we could work through and I could give you current examples of all sorts of people's lives of how Christ is making his name known through suffering. The road of Christ is, is painful. It's not always safe, <clears throat> but it's still full of joy. It's, it's still full of purpose. And, and I want to I point out that the comment I just made is it's a really strong comment, to be frank. It's not something that I make lightly. It's not something that makes sense to the world. It's certainly not something that our hearts are naturally inclined to, to be a part of. But I want to look together at how the Apostle Paul admonishes the church to rejoice in suffering with purpose. Look at verses 24 and through 26 of chapter 1 again. It says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. So first, you'll, you'll see here Paul's pastoral task. Verses 24 through 26, it kind of lays out his task. And if you were to look back into verse 21, Michael covered this really well last week. Paul says he's become a minister of the hope of the gospel. And so as we segue into, into verse 24, it's a good connecting point. Paul says, I'm a minister of this hope that moves us to rejoice even when suffering. Now, I don't want to overlook this because for, for hope that he speaks of to give us the ability to rejoice in suffering, that, that's different, right? That's, that's saying something. That, that, that has reminders for us from like James, for instance. Take joy in suffering. In fact, James, when he says that, it's not a suggestion. It's a command, by the way. So honestly, church, if we choose not to rejoice in suffering, we're, we're walking in disobedience. And so what is this hope? Like without this hope, Paul's talking about, and we're going to unfold today, without this hope, there would be no reason for rejoicing. In verse 24, he begins to unfold this idea of there's a hope that we're going to look at, and this hope causes us to rejoice with a purpose in suffering. He says, for your sake. Now, as a quick aside, Paul never visited Colossae. He never planted this church. And so Paul says, for your sake. Somehow, Paul's suffering is for the sake of the church at Colossae. And I would argue, furthermore, it's also somehow for the sake of the church universal. So it reaches our church today in 2023. So, so how is Paul suffering for the sake of the church that he's never visited? How is Paul suffering for the sake of TCC? And I think addressing the point is, is important, but I'm going to come back to that closer to the end because he, he talks a little bit about being there in spirit and being absent. But, but I really want to get to what I believe is a portion or at least a main topic of, of the passage that we've got before us today. And, and honestly, I, I kind of looked over it in my preparation at first, but as I really started digging in, it's a pretty startling statement. Look in verse 24. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does it mean? What does it mean for Paul to fill up something that's lacking in Christ? Is, is, is something lacking in, in the atonement of Christ? Is, 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 the, is, is what Christ did on the cross, what is, was it not sufficient to save us? It's almost as if, as if Paul's saying the atonement of Christ was insufficient. That's not what he's saying. 
In fact, if I were to stand before you today, I would hope, as wise, mature Christians, you would recognize that's heresy. That's not at all what Paul is saying. He's not saying that Christ's work on Calvary was not enough. Because what could Paul, or for that matter, what could any of us do to further add to what Christ has done on the cross? What could we do to fill the deficiency of what, what, what happened on the cross? And if perhaps the cross was deficient, we would be just as Paul says in Corinthians, we'd be a people to be pitied. We'd be without hope. There'd be no reason to rejoice in suffering. And we'd have no hope for eternity. So we know that's not what Paul is saying. He makes that really clear in other places in the New Testament. We know that from a very robust understanding of Christology and the understanding of the atonement and New Testament theology. But what is he saying? When we come to this verse and we see Paul saying what he's saying, what is he saying? And, and to be quite frank, a lot of discussion and debate has been given to this over the centuries. It was actually pretty interesting to read through a lot of what is not orthodox. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do my best to summarize what I believe was Paul's intent. So when Paul says he's filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, this word afflictions actually in the original Greek is never used to reference the, the afflictions on the cross. I think that's pretty important. A couple uh, commentators point this out. So in fact, N.T. Wright specifically points out the Greek word here for afflictions is never used to refer to the cross. So Paul is not referring to adding to the work of Calvary. But instead, here's what he's doing. He's referencing the practice of the principle of Calvary. Christ's atoning work is sufficient, but Paul is taking part somehow in the supreme outworking of the cross and the gospel. And that supreme outworking, that's, that's suffering. And I think it's, a, it's an important point to point out that suffering is not a suffering in this context due to disobedience. Amy and I talked quite a bit about this yesterday. Is there grace to be found in suffering when you've disobeyed? Yeah, sure. When you disobey and you suffer as a, as a consequence and then you repent, there's much grace to be found. But that's not the suffering that Paul is talking about here. The, Paul, the, the suffering that Paul is talking about in this passage is a suffering that the Lord brings about for a purpose. It's a pretty provocative statement. God is bringing about suffering for a purpose. So Wright actually continues, and he says this, the vocation of the church is to suffer with Christ. Romans 8.17 We are to take up our cross and carry it. Matthew 16 We are to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Philippians 3.10. Church, it was Christ's vocation to suffer, so it is our vocation. When his people are afflicted, Corinthians tells us he is afflicted. We even sang about that this morning, that he's with us in our affliction. And because our afflictions are not yet complete, so the afflictions of Christ are still being filled and will one day come to an end, but have not yet. Harold Horner, in his work on Colossians, offers a more literal read. I think this is pretty helpful for our verse. And the literal read says this, I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, on behalf of his body. And this church is why Paul says he is rejoicing in his sufferings, because he sees his lot as a privilege to serve Christ. He is not surprised by the suffering that comes as a result of being a follower of Christ. He's not surprised that he's sharing in the suffering of Christ that he was promised from the Lord himself. Now, I've just given you a whole lot, theologically, but Here's what I want to do. I want to talk about what this really looks like in our practical experience. What, what does this look like in our life? Like, should we go looking for suffering? Chris, if you're telling me that suffering's a part of my life, should I, like, run headlong into it and try to find it? Or if perhaps you're suffering and I'm not, does that make you more godly than me? Or, or is it wrong for me to want the suffering to stop? when I'm in the midst of suffering? 
Or, or, or what about this? How should we interact with the Lord during suffering? And is God somehow vindictive? Because he's using suffering to carry out his plan. What if I'm angry? If I'm honest with you, church, my wife and I have asked most of all these questions many times over the last eight months of our life. And I think it's worth talking through them. They, they carry weight and they're worth pondering. This is how we walk with Christ. We think through these things together and we, we allow the scriptures to challenge us. So should we go looking for suffering? No, no, you should not go look for suffering. Our chief aim as a Christian is to know and love God more. You don't have to look for suffering. Trust me on that. It'll find you. So no, you shouldn't go look for it. Does it make you more godly than me if you happen to be suffering now and I am not? Absolutely not. No, we shouldn't boast in anything. Our time will come. And honestly, I've heard one pastor say, if you don't ever see suffering in your life for the sake of Christ, are you a believer? It, your time will come, but it does not make you more godly to suffer. Will it make you more godly? I believe yes. If you are a believer in Christ and you have the power of the Spirit living within you, will the outcome of your suffering result in maturity in Christ? Yes. But does it make you more godly to suffer? No. If you are perhaps suffering now, is it wrong to ask God for that suffering to stop? And how should you interact with God? Here's the answer. No, I don't think so. I, I, think, I think it's natural. God created us to interact with him as humans because we're not God. So for you to pray, Lord, please remove this suffering from me. Is that inherently wrong? No, but, but here's, here's the warning. Here's the admonition I would provide for you. If you are only focused, solely focused on asking God for that suffering to be removed from your life, I think you're wasting that suffering. Don't let that be your only focus. Get me out of this, Lord. I want to be back to my comfortable life. Trust that God is, it, is with you in it and he's doing great things through it. Even Job questions God. And God is with him and he's gracious with him. And he does eventually say, where were you when I created the foundations of the world? But he doesn't leave Job. He doesn't forsake Job. We talked about this this week with a few guys. The fact that Job approached God with these questions, that's honoring to God. It's referencing or, or revering God that he knows God is in control. God has the power and no one else does. And church, I would warn you, don't, don't miss the grace throughout the suffering. Oftentimes, it's, it's really easy to step back and look at the macro version of what's going on in your life instead of stepping back for a minute and looking. Look at God's hand. Look what he did there. Look how he answered this prayer. Look at his, his grace in sustaining me, providing for me. And then is, is God somehow vindictive as if he's using our sufferings to accomplish his plan? No, absolutely not. The Lord Jesus suffered in an ultimate way on our behalf when he suffered the wrath of the Father. Don't ever forget that the worst part of the cross was not that he was stripped and humiliated and beaten and died. The worst part of the cross was that he suffered the wrath of the Father. And for believers, that's something we'll never comprehend. And so if God is considered to be vindictive for using suffering in our life, then I guess he was vindictive when he used Jesus' life on our behalf. And we would never say that. The Lord is never going to ask you to walk through any amount of suffering that he himself has not more infinitely gone through and experienced and never sinned. He suffered the wrath of the Father, and we will never understand it. Think of a good parent. I mean, as a dad, I have a lot of kids, as you well know. When my, when my kids suffer, man, that hurts me. And he's eternally greater of a father. Look what he says in verse 25. Paul continues. He says, For this I was made a minister, that is, to make the word of God fully known. So back in verse 23... He mentions being a minister of the gospel, and now, here in verse 25, he's more narrowing his approach, which we'll see throughout the coming weeks. He's a minister of the church, so through the church universal and to the church at Colossae, specifically. 
God gave him this ministry. Why? Paul tells you to make the word of God fully known. He'll go on to expound this more in verse 26, and we'll look at that together. But he says, specifically, God gave me this ministry. I didn't choose it, but I joyfully receive it. Do we joyfully receive the suffering that God places before us? Verse 26, to make the mystery that was hidden for ages, but now has been revealed to the saints. This is the word of God he references in 25. So he further unfolds what he's talking about in verse 25, and this is the mystery that's been hidden for ages and now revealed to the saints. This is Paul giving you his purpose and his focus. He is a minister to make this mystery known. And this is without personal ambition or without exaltation of himself. Paul doesn't talk a lot about himself throughout the scriptures. This is a little different for Paul, but he continues to bring you back to his purpose. You know, Piper has some really incredibly challenging truths for us around this passage. I don't know many people that, is, that have written and preached more on suffering than John Piper And and here's a few thoughts he he throws out that were particularly challenging to me. He said, Christ is made invisible when we choose not to suffer. Did you hear what I said? Christ is made invisible when you choose not to suffer. Christ is meant to be made visible through the afflictions of his people. He says, the Calvary road is not a joyless road, but it is a painful one. But it is a profoundly happy one. When we choose the fleeting pleasures of comfort and security over the sacrifices and sufferings of missions and evangelism and ministry and love, we choose against joy. Did you hear what I said? If we choose all this stuff that we run hard after every single day in America, instead of receiving suffering, we choose against joy. We choose broken cisterns that could hold no water and reject the spring of water whose waters never fail, Isaiah 58. This is why Paul says he rejoices. This is is because Paul understands what true joy is. This is because he knows the only way to find true joy is in Christ. The happiest people in the world are those that have seen the mystery of Christ in them, the hope of glory that is in them, and they are so satisfied with Christ that they are free to suffer for other people and lay down their heads at night and sleep like babies. The happiest people in the world are not believers that seek to be comfortable in America. Are are we willing to suffer for Christ? Like really? Like like really? Are are, Are you and I willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? Are are we willing to suffer alongside of Christ, to really take part in his afflictions? Because what Paul is challenging us in this passage to understand is that what will make you happy in Christ is to follow Paul's example and be so enamored and so satisfied with Jesus that our sufferings produce a joy that is inexplainable by the world. This is what Piper's getting at. This is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's a quote from Piper. He says this, We are to make the afflictions of Christ real for the people by the afflictions we experience. There is no sustained love in witness to Jesus without sacrifice without suffering. When we suffer well and for the sake of Christ, we put Christ on display for the world to see and we are to take part in this until he returns. It's not an option. This doesn't necessarily mean you'll physically die, but it might. But the deeper question is, are you willing? Am I willing? Are we teaching our children to be willing? to be so satisfied in Christ that we would look just as the apostles did in Acts when they say you can do anything you want but speak of Christ 
And they say, we'll do anything you ask, but we'll never stop speaking of Christ. I heard a man once say, how do you threaten a dead man? They understand that they have died in Christ and there is so much satisfaction in Jesus that you can do whatever you want to my body, this side of heaven, but I will never stop speaking of Christ. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? How will you respond to when in the heat of suffering? What is too much and how far is too far to suffer for the sake of Christ? Do you love like he loves? Do you suffer like he suffers? This reminds me of Mark 8.35. A lot of commentators throw this out there. Whoever loses his life for my sake, what? Will find it. He'll find it. Jesus means for the gospel to be carried to the world through our afflictions. Jesus wants to be made visible to the world through the visible afflictions of his church. He initiated this on the cross. He made his love for the world visible through suffering, and now he's asking us to do the same. I warned you at the beginning of this sermon that it's not a topic we like to talk about or think about a lot, but but I pray that it is challenging you in a way that is going to bring more glory to God. Now, I want to bring this a bit more personal. You know, I, I talk about how to apply this to your own life, and I talked a lot about how this, you know, has been our life for the last eight months, you know. And, and so I will tell you this. How do you respond to someone in suffering? More practically, you do a lot of listening and a lot of praying. Oftentimes, you don't open your mouth. But when you do, through patience and through grace, You can encourage someone in suffering through Colossians 1. You can. Many of you know our our little Winnie Jane. I swore Winnie would do this. Winnie was born November of 2022. She was born with an extremely rare genetic mutation and is, in fact, which is kind of cool, she's pretty famous, um, the only baby in the world with her concoction or groupings of, I guess, problems, if you will, based on her genetic mutation. We were not aware of this in utero. Her condition has many effects on her little life. She has refractory seizures. In fact, I was sitting there doing some math yesterday. If we had to use an average of four seizures per day in her 264 days of life today, She's had well over a 1,000 seizures in her life. Um, many of those have lasted over an hour. She has a trach and a ventilator, which we're grateful for. That's a stable airway. She has a rigorous med ske- schedule, a, a rigorous care plan. She has developmental challenges around movement and speech. She has roughly spent only five weeks at home out of the hospital. She continues to suffer daily. As you can imagine, our family's life has been changed um, significantly. When she's at the hospital, Amy and I are tag team in life and living quite separately, and it's hard to get together and talk about anything, much less, you know, interact on any level. Um, and when Winnie's home, there's always some, someone in our house. I mean, I'm an extrovert. Amy's an introvert, but good gracious. I mean, you know, I don't want someone there all the time, and so we're grateful for our home nursing, but it's a lot to have someone in my house throughout the night. <clears throat> it, it, it's a sustained suffering, if I'm honest with you. It's, I've watched... The, the concern in my kids' eyes. For months, and I've heard their prayers. I've watched my wife fervently fight for our daughter in ways that I never knew possible. With a supernatural strength of a mother that I know only comes from the Lord. 
And behind every smile you see in me and Amy, there's this, as Amy puts it, there's this little death that's impending in our life. In his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Brogrup uses this illustration that while in suffering, no matter what is happening in life, there's this, this minor key playing in the background that overshadows everything else. And this is so true in my family's experience in this season. So why do I tell you this? Do I tell you this because I want you to feel bad for me? Do I tell you this to look at me and say, oh, wow, they're amazing, they're awesome. <laughs> Absolutely not. In fact, quite the opposite, because behind closed doors, we often aren't full of faith, and we're human, and we're tired, and we're sinful, and we're angry. But here's why I tell you this. I tell you this for a myriad of reasons. I tell you this because as I study this passage, I'm challenged through it, and I don't want to look back on this time and wish I had suffered better for the sake of Christ. I want to redeem the time as Paul challenges in chapter 4. I want to grow more mature and assured in the gospel through my suffering. And I want the gospel to be made more visible through my suffering for the world and for your sake. I want to be reminded that Christ is with me and he is not vindictive and he has not forsaken me and he is with me in the suffering. I want to be reminded that Christ has suffered far more than I will ever understand. And he is accomplishing much during this time, even things I can't see. I want to be reminded that many are seeing the visible Christ work through me and through my afflictions, and this has eternal worth, even, even amidst my sin. I want my heart to be comforted and find true joy, as Paul talks about during this time of suffering, because it's worth it, and Christ is worth it, and he's good, and he's faithful, and he will sustain me. And I want to see, and I want to notice his hand during this time, and I want to give him praise for these things. And I want my children to learn how to suffer well and not be surprised when suffering comes. What a huge detriment that is for the next generation of our church when we fail to disciple our children in suffering. My confession and my prayer before you, church, is that the Lord would help me and my family truly rejoice in our suffering, that our afflictions would make the gospel more visible to the world around us, that we would grow in our grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and in our maturity through Christ, and that we would be encouraged and assured in Christ because he's with us and he's all that we need. And I want the same thing for you. I want us to pray for one another to that end. I want us to challenge one another to that end. I want this church to be a church that knows what it means to suffer and knows what it means not to say something stupid during suffering and knows what it means not to just push suffering to the side and dismiss it because it's uncomfortable, but that we know it's going to come and God is good and he's intentional in the suffering and we can trust him. That's what I want. I tell you of this personal situation in my life because it's a lot and we missed the mark. But you've been so faithful to us in so many ways. And I pray the Lord blesses you for that. But I pray your suffering would do the same for you and would encourage my family from afar as well. Sometimes we're stuck asking God why and looking for purpose in all of this. And honestly, as I talked to a friend this week about it, we placed this unnecessary amount of anxiety around God. What is your purpose through this? And we, we lose focus on what he's actually doing. Don't ever forget, church, that even though you don't know the purpose, it doesn't make it purposeless. God has a sovereign plan in his providence. I got to quickly share about Winnie's name, her middle name. Um, prior to her birth, we were so convinced she was a little boy. So we bought little boy clothes and you know, people are like, what are you going to name her if she's a girl? And we're like, she's not a girl, so whatever. Um, and so we had decided Winifred. I can tell you more about what that means uh, later on. But um, we had picked out a boy name. And one day, Amy was sitting in the kitchen doing her devotional. And she said to the Lord, you know, pretty straightforward, like, hey, we've always thought about picking our children's name with intention. But I don't know that we've ever prayed. Lord, what do you want us to name our daughter? And the Lord just laid on her heart this phrase, the Lord is merciful. And so she was like, oh, that's cool. Like, maybe I'll go look and see what name means that. And to your surprise, I'm sure if you spent more than two seconds in my house, something happened with one of the kids, and she was whisked off and never came back to determine what name actually meant God is merciful. <clears throat> so fast forward to the day before her birth. Amy had COVID, which is awesome. And so she's sitting in the hospital room that Monday, and one of our dear friends reaches out to her and says, hey, I had a dream last night that, uh, that you had a girl, and her name was Jane. And 
Amy was like, oh, that's cool. My friend was thinking about me and, you know, whatever, da-da-da, whatever. But it's like, it doesn't really matter because it's a boy. So <clears throat> that evening, um, we were scheduled to be induced that Tuesday morning. It was Monday night. And I was over there soundly sleeping on that Tempur-Pedic fold-out couch in the hospital. <laughs> and uh, Amy woke me up at like 3 in the morning, very abruptly, you know, and I was in my grogginess, was like, what's going on? She was like, Honey, her name is not going to be Winnie Grace. It's going to be Winnie Jane. I'm like, why? What are you talking about? She's like, well, I couldn't sleep and got restless leg and all the things. And um, I looked up what Jane means, and it means God is merciful. I won't lie to you and tell you every day is great. Winnie's a blessing. She's wonderful, and she's helped us grow in Christ, and she's blessed us in so many ways. But the Lord has been so near to us, even in the suffering. He's been very merciful to us, and the Spirit is holding us fast. Winnie Jane, even amidst her suffering and her challenges, has been a blessing to us. She's changed us for the better. And I pray through God's mercy that he does the same for all of us for his glory. This is, his, this is God's mercy to us. Suffering is God's mercy to us. We wouldn't choose it, but he chooses it because this is how he seeks to make himself known. This is how he sought to make himself known on the cross, and this is how he's continuing to make himself known to the world. So church, suffer well. Look at verse 26. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And then in verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this, majesty, this mystery, which in Christ in you is the hope of glory. So what is the mystery of Christ that Paul references here in Colossians? And this is also a topic that's been debated quite a bit over the centuries. But most people would agree, and Robert Wall helps us think through this, that the meaning of this mystery is a metaphor for God's plan of salvation for the Gentiles. So this is the unknown part prior to this time with Paul that was unknown to the, the generations prior. This is divine revelation that, that Christ has come to save even the Gentiles. So Wall goes on to say that often Paul will emphasize different theological dimensions of the mystery depending on the crisis facing the people. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, for the believers at Colossae, their crisis stemmed from them being overly Jewish in their understanding. Overly Jewish in that salvation isn't for anyone outside of the Jewish nation. And furthermore, you have to do things to add to what Christ has done. So the fact that Christ's work and only his work is sufficient is incredibly important to this church. So what are the riches of the glory of this mystery? The glorious riches of this mystery is that God has elected the Gentiles for salvation, and it's in Christ's work that makes this election effective. Christ's work is sufficient. And what is the hope of the mystery? Christ is the hope of the mystery. Michael talked through this very extensively last week during his breaking down of the first part of Colossians. Christ is enough. Christ is the hope. His work was fully effective, and he is all we need for life and godliness. 1 Timothy 1.1, Christ Jesus is our hope. Because of our relationship with Christ, we can have the hope of glory, the future hope only possible with Christ. Douglas Moo reminds us that this is a key theme for Paul in the book of Colossians. We see it in verse 5, we see it in verse 23, our hope is tied to Christ alone and on nothing else. And that is our hope for rejoicing and suffering. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So verse 28, we proclaim Christ and warn and teach. Well, wait a minute, Paul. What are, you, what are you warning against? Proclaiming, got it. Teaching, got it. Warning, what are you warning against? What are you warning against with wisdom to ensure we're mature? You'll begin to see this 
Mike and, and Benjamin will, will kind of help us think through this over the following weeks, but Paul begins to kind of narrow his focus. And this is where he kind of starts to turn the corner and gives you specific reasonings as to why he's talking about what he's talking about. He begins to further articulate the specifics of his task. He started with rejoicing and suffering to make the mystery fully known. That is, Christ is sufficient, right? And then here, he begins to talk about warning and teaching with all wisdom so that the church grows in maturity so that they're not led astray. They're not deluded, which we'll see by plausible arguments in a minute. So how does he do it? He proclaims Christ. He proclaims Christ's sufficient work. His work of atonement on Calvary was fully sufficient. This is the mystery that has been revealed. So rest in it, church. He warns them not to be allured by a false gospel and be tempted to add to the gospel. This, by default, pushes them to revive their minds and hearts around the riches of the true gospel. He teaches the whole counsel of God. You know, this is a, a reason why we at TCC are committed to expositional teaching. We teach verse by verse through the Bible because it forces us to deal with topics that are not culturally exciting, that are not often fun to talk about. They're hard. They're challenging. But the whole counsel of God is important for us to be mature in Christ and to not be led astray. Lucas, in his work on Colossians, reminds us that it is interesting and important to remember that eventually in chapter 3, Paul reminds all believers that we are to take part in this ministry together. So do not ever believe the lie that your job is to pay and get out of the way. You ever heard that? Because that's not at all the Bible. Yes, your pastors have a job. It's an office held to pray and to preach to shepherd the flock, but all of us collectively have the responsibility to grow in maturity in Christ, to warn and to admonish and to teach and to love and to challenge one another so that we would be mature. So Paul says, this is why I struggle. He turns us back to verse 25. He says, I'm a minister according to the stewardship of God. He's determined to ensure that we are all mature in Christ. He's not chosen the message. He's not chosen the method. God has chosen all of that. But he knows that his struggle to the end of his life is this. To make sure the church is mature. Struggling with all his energy. And then he says that he, that Christ, powerfully works within me. Do not miss this. If you find yourself struggling and toiling on your own strength, it's futile. Paul specifically references the power of God because it's through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul toils. Anything you attempt apart from the Spirit is futile. Douglas Moose says that the ultimate aim is to balance human effort with the enabling grace of God in Christ. All of Paul's work would be of little effect if it was done, not done through the power of Christ. I'm going to zip through these last couple points because we're running out of time. But in verses 1 through 5, you see this necessary struggle. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you so that... Now here Paul continues to give you more specific purpose. He shifts from a more general purpose to a more specific. And he gives three purposes. Here's what he says. He says, number one, I struggle so that your hearts are encouraged and are knit together in love. Number two, I struggle so that you reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. And number three, I struggle so that you reach all the riches of the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. What do these things mean? Here's what they mean. Paul wants you and me to have an inner strength. He wants us to be strengthened and encouraged O'Brien continues to help us think about this in his commentary. He said, what Paul's getting at here is the inner life of the person. This is at the center of our personality. This is at the source of our will. This is the source of our emotions and our thoughts and our affections. This is the inner life. And if our inner life is weak, everything else is off kilter, right? You, you've experienced this in your life. 
If there's turmoil internally, everything else is affected. So Paul wants our hearts, the churches at Colossae's hearts, of these believers to be strengthened, to be strong against heretical teaching. And then he mentions this idea of being knit together in love. You can see unity all the way back in Genesis, in the Trinity, but it's all throughout the New Testament. Unified in love. This is unity of the community. Why? Why do we need unity? There's unity that needs to be there for strength and support. This is grace to us. This is life together through us, for us. So we remain strong together. And furthermore, when there's unity, there's loving admonition. If you see me speaking to my children in a way that is not honoring to God as a brother in Christ, we can talk about that. And you can challenge me. If I hear you believing or being pulled away and allured by something that's not biblical, we can talk about that. Unity in the community ensures that we're loving, admonishing, challenging, teaching, pushing one another towards maturity in Christ. But then he says, I, I struggle so that you reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. Paul basically is saying this. When we live life in a church community, which is why we push local church membership, when we live life in a church community as described above, a natural outcome is that we have assurance and further understanding of what we gain in Christ. N.T. Wright says, a proper understanding of the gospel leads to the rich blessings of being settled in a conviction and an assurance. Living in a loving and forgiving community will assist growth in understanding and vice versa as truth is confirmed in practice. Practice enables truth to be seen in action and so to be fully grasped. It all ties back to unity in the community. Strengthening of the heart. Being encouraged and unified. There's a level of comfort here in the assurance. But he goes on to challenge them at the end of verse 2. And this is the third thing he says he struggles for. And this is, this is a challenge to us. So that you reach all the riches of the knowledge of God's mystery. There's no reason to look elsewhere. You know, this week... Uh, Mike and Benjamin and I got together, and we just kind of discussed our passages for a couple hours. It's really encouraging, really helpful, and, and, you know, we're kind of working through all this together. But it was interesting, as we worked through it, Benjamin somewhat explained, he said, you know, it's interesting, as we think through the end of chapter 1 and the first part of 2, and then Mike kind of will lay out the first part of 2, and then when we get to the end of chapter 2, it almost would seem ridiculous, if all these things are true, for you to seek out anything else other than the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul's getting to. Although these new Gentile believers have a long way to go, as do we, what Paul wants them is to fully grasp that you have everything, all the riches in Christ. He is the mystery that has been revealed. And Paul wants us to understand in wisdom and full maturity of understanding what that means. So, in Christ, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. This is his final reminder. And this is huge news, by the way, because remember, think about it from the Gentiles' perspective. Prior to Paul showing up on the scene, it's as if they were cut off and had no option. Now there is no ethnic divide. There actually hasn't ever been, frankly. But Paul was sent to say, it doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your heritage. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter where you live or where you came from or what you do or how much money you have. The gospel is the great equalizer and all of God's elect and faith have access to Jesus. And oh, by the way, they're not just saved, but they have access to all the full understanding and all the wisdom and all the riches of the inheritance for all of eternity. You are made sons and daughters of the king. That's huge. No racial divider. Paul continues to further narrow his purpose. He talks about this plausible argument. I won't get into the, de the details of that because we have kind of gotten to the end of our time. But, but I do want to spend a second talking about this last statement he says in verse 5. He finishes by saying, though I'm physically absent, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing and in essence rooting you on to see your good order and your firm and unwavering faith in Christ. And I told the guys this week as I pondered this, 
I couldn't help but think of some of the phrases I hear in my workplace or in the world, and you're going to know what I'm talking about, like sending good vibes your way, you know, or sending good thoughts your way. And I've often jokingly wanted to like respond and be like, hey, man, uh, can you tell me how you do that? Because I want your vibes, man. Like I want your, I want your thoughts. I want to do that. I want to give you my vibes, you know, like how do I do that? <clears throat> and so obviously I'm joking um, and we're gracious because very clearly uh, it makes no sense for them to think otherwise if they don't have a relationship with Christ. And the only reason we know that that's ridiculous is because Christ has opened our eyes. But the reason I mention this, and, and Mike kind of articulated this a bit this week, what Paul is saying here is so profoundly different than some silly catchphrase like that. When Paul says, I'm with you in spirit, how in the world is he with them in spirit but physically absent? What does that mean? I think it means, or it's able to happen because of their shared union in Christ. A couple things I think about is, have you ever been like out of town or maybe you go to an event or a social and you meet somebody and you just know, like, kindred spirit, that's a believer. Like, I just know you're a believer. And then when you get to that point in the conversation, you're not surprised because you're like, I knew it. I knew it. Like you have that shared union with Christ and there's a supernatural something happening, right? But to even be more specific, all this is made possible because we share a union with Christ and the Holy Spirit has given us this through our relationship with Christ. So when, when in other words, what, what O'Brien helps us think about is he says, because we both live with Christ, he is present. Paul is present with them in some way. And he's not only with with them in spirit, but his witness and his example of faithfully suffering is a great encouragement to this church, and it's a great encouragement to our church. And this takes us back to the way that Paul serves his church. Remember I said I'd say, say more about this earlier. When he says, in some way for your sake, I think this is what he's talking about. I'm an encouragement to you. I'm praying for you. I'm rooting you on. And because of our shared union in Christ, I'm with you in spirit. So today, I say to myself, and I say to you, don't waver from your faith when presented other plausible arguments from the culture around you. The world seeks to redefine gender and gender roles and sexuality and provides other ways to get to God outside of Christ. Don't be allured away. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Be mature in Christ. Test things. If you have questions, ask us. Challenge us if you feel as though there is something that is off kilter. That's how the church works. Remain steadfast, church, and suffer well so that Christ will be made visible and his name be made great so that many would come to know this incredible mystery and take part in the inheritance for all of eternity. Let's pray.